sometime between the late late AD 60s and the the uh, and AD 90. Uh, the Christians at the time, the church that's written to, the churches in, in Turkey, are part of the Roman Empire. The empire is, uh, is flexing its muscles. The Christians are experiencing uh, persecution, and that is, is kind of the background for what we need to say this morning. So uh, I'll read to you beginning at verse 11 of chapter 13. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a, hand, like a lamb. And it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authorities of the first beast in its presence. It makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making the fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work, in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give birth to the image of the beast, breath, sorry, breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak. It might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And it also causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man, and, it's, and his number is 666. Then I looked again, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is those who have not been defiled, defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Uh, Here's, the, here's the, the, the situation, as I said. They're experiencing persecution. They're experiencing deep persecution. We know that Revelation, we've talked about before, rather than being one story beginning at, at verse 1 and ending at the end, is actually the same story repeated in seven cycles. And so we're going through another cycle. Another big feature of Revelation is this, is that often when you see images like the beast and all of these other uh, uh, for lack of a better term, comic book, uh, comic book images. These images are meant to tell us tell us something, but they're told in a uh, in a sort of a grandiose way. Oftentimes, when we see things like the beast and we see the things that the beast are doing, what we are encountering is counterfeiting. So the true story uh, of the lamb is often contrasted with the counterfeiting story of, of the beast and these characters here. So in, in chapter 13, what is happening is telling the story of, of the beast. In other words, one of the persecutors, one of the attackers, one of those who would come against the, the Christ followers. This beast rises out of the earth. It has two horns like a lamb, but it speaks like a dragon. It uh, exercises all the authority of the first beast. We didn't talk about the, about the first beast, but uh, by the same token, representational of, of, uh, of the evil in the time, representational of the political powers of the time and representational of, of the, the satanic influence on the political powers uh, at that time. So, so the first beast has horns like a lamb, but it's got a voice like a dragon. And it's exercising authority, and it's making the earth and its inhabitants worship the beast whose mortal wound was healed. So there's a mortal wound that was healed. The idea here is, is that the, the beast... The, the rulers uh, of the, the day are, are mimicking or trying to show themselves as if they were uh, the lamb. Remember, way back when we talked about in, in chapter 4 and 5, there was a lamb who was near the throne. The lamb represented Jesus, and he was the one who, who was alive, yet he looked as though he had been slain. He had been healed. It, was, it represented the true 
power. It represented the true God. It represented Jesus. Here we're seeing counterfeits. And that's just the idea that you need to get that, that in the culture in the first century and every culture since, there are counterfeits. There are things that would compete or vie for or, or try to come after your attention, that would try and come after your, your worship, that would try and come after your, your, um, your love, that would try and come after your affection, that would try and come after you to put your energy into them. These things have existed from the first century and they exist in, in, in our own time. They're all the things that shout out, worship me, worship me, worship me. And they're represented here in Revelation as, as something that is a, a counterfeit. They try and make themselves look like or set themselves up in the place of, of God or, or to look like Jesus. So the word of wound had been healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth. And so uh, the, the, the false, the, the beast, these false gods, they, they perform signs. The signs uh, harken back to the signs performed uh, by, by, the great, uh, by the great followers of Yahweh in the, in the Old Testament. They're even mimicking uh, those signs. Uh, and by, uh, it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. In other words, here's the great cosmic uh, thing. Um, I don't want to overuse uh, the, the uh, a comic book reference, but one of my one of my sort of core beliefs is the reason we like stories in our culture, the reason good versus evil stories resonate in our culture is because we were created uh, to be for God, but when, when sin entered the world, the world is designed in such a way that, that all of the little stories you see all over are telling a bigger story. In other words, the point I'm making here, here is this, is what you are encountering in this passage is, is similar to a similar to a great epic. It is similar to, to um, the best movies you might see. It's similar to a comic book that you might read. It is good versus evil uh, happening here. And in the good versus evil moment, what is happening is, is that the evil is trying to make itself and appear to be and make itself look like it is it is the good and so it is asking people to worship him it's asking people to come for him there is a competing in, in this passage good versus evil and evil wants the allegiance of, of all of the people of the earth uh, and it was allowed to give breath to the uh, verse 15 uh, it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image to be slain so in in the in the good versus evil story in the in the first century and in uh, what is happening is he's telling the story. He's basically saying to them, you're coming into a time when things are going to vie with you and compete with the allegiance that you are supposed to give only to God, the allegiance that you're supposed to give to Christ, the allegiance you're supposed to give to Yahweh. And, and evil is going to come along and it's going to be deceptive and it's going to impersonate and it's going to look good and it's going to want you to go ahead and come and worship it. Do not worship it. But if you do not worship it, he's also warning them that they live in a time whereas, where if they reject that which is asking to be worshipped, if they reject it, it is likely that they will be persecuted for or die for, for those, those beliefs. So the, the evil that had risen up, uh, the evil that had received uh, breath, from the beast, it, it, uh, it has life, and the life is in him, so it might speak and even cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast, or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of man, and his number is 666. So, I don't know how you grew up or what culture you grew up in. I definitely grew up in, in church culture. And one of the things about growing up in, in church culture is, is that there it was a large emphasis on this passage right here. So I know people who, who literally to this day are like, yeah, man, I won't go into a church. They showed me a bunch of scary movies uh, about this six, six, guy, six guy when I was little, and I can't even go in 
into a church uh, anymore. And so if you grew up in, in a church, you might have been raised, if you were raised in the kind of church that I was raised in, with this fear that someone big and scary was going to come along, they were going to tackle you, and they were going to stamp you on the forehead with their 666. And we were taught to fear this mark. We were taught that, that there was coming a, a, a day, uh, a, a future day where literally people would be branded either on the hand or, or, the, uh, or the forehead. And uh, so, let me just go. So I don't know what you want to do with that. I don't know how, how that grabs you. Uh, or not, but I want to point out here that that kind of emphasis sort of misses the point of, of, of the passage that the point of the passage is, is going to get to. And an emphasis and a fear on whether that happens or not sort of mixes, misses other places in Scripture. But let me just say this. The idea, the idea of, behind this passage is using a reference to, to what happened in ancient times when people were conquered when, when nations were conquered and taken over, they would be taken over and placed into slavery to the nation that conquered them. The one who would took them over would, would take that and they would brand them as property, as ownership. And so essentially what, it, what he's saying is those who do not place themselves in slavery to the, to the beast, those who do not place themselves into slavery to the image of the beast, those who do not do what the beast says they are the ones who are going to, be, uh, going to be killed and they're the ones who are going to be excluded. And so what it's saying is this, is that there are a bunch of people in, in the culture and in the time in which it's talking about in the first century and every culture afterwards who essentially by their behavior, by their affections, by the things that they are into, by what they worship, who essentially have been marked off as slaves to the beast as slaves to the antithesis of good, slaves to the opposite of what God would want and what God would choose. Now, we, we could debate, and there, there's, there's differing opinions on how much of this passage has a, a, a future application, right? How much of this passage, is there, is there coming a, a day when this will, will come, uh, uh, that this will happen in, in the future, or is this something that happened in the past speaking directly to the churches in, in Turkey, or is this something that happens all throughout the life of the church pretty consistently? These sorts of, this sort of issue happens in the church consistently. What I mean is this, is, is this talking to Turkey about someone specific? We'll talk about that in a minute. Is this, is this talking to people who live in specifically the very last moments before Jesus comes? And is it talking to them specifically and thus does not refer to the people uh, in Turkey at all? Or does it refer to all people in all time? And does it have some application to all people all time? So uh, let's work backwards, right? So if we interpret this simply as something futuristic right? Something to come. If we're all waiting around looking for a person who is going to come and appear on earth, who is going to give this mark and is going to put the mark on these people, and we interpret that to be a, a literal occurrence instead of a, 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 a figurative statement about a reality. If we, if we deem that to be something that's going to literally happen, someone in the future is going to literally come and stamp people. The problem you have is that the book of Revelation was written to a group of people. The problem that you have is that the book of Revelation tells you who those people are. The book of Revelation is very careful in the first three chapters to tell you about these seven churches in Asia in the first century, and it's very careful to tell you that this book is written to them. Now, if this, this moment where, where they're marked with the 666, where they're, where they're deemed as, as, as slaves uh, to, to this this evil power, if that applies only to some group in the future, whether it is us or some group way beyond us, we have to ask then, why did John write it to the church at Asia and how would have they, or to the churches in Turkey, to the church, and how would have the churches in Turkey applied it, right? That is not um, typically how scripture works. Now, while there are often future applications of things that happened, we would have to be essentially saying that when, when God wrote this or sent this to, to the churches in Turkey, he wrote it, but it has no application to them. And yet, as you read it, 
It seems as though John, writing uh, on behalf of, 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 of the Father, uh, this vision, is speaking directly to them, and he is telling them something. And in fact, if you look at their situation, it seems as though he's telling them something directly about their situation, right? So I don't think that we can say that there is a only, only future application of this, meaning that, that this passage has not yet in any way come true. It will only come true someday in, in the future. The problem with that is, is that it ignores the people it was directly written to, which is not how scripture usually functions. It ignores historical grammatical interpretive method, which means what did this mean in history? What is the grammar? What did it mean to the original hearers and how do I apply it to me? That's how we apply all of scripture, by the way. We'd have to ignore that to, to apply this. It also ignores that it's speaking directly to the situation of the people in Turkey. So what I'm going to say, I say that to suggest this to you, that this passage is written specifically to the people in Turkey at that time as they experienced something that was going on and yet we take what was being said to the churches in, in, in Turkey to those seven churches which as we said before there's seven of them because it's the perfect number because they're perfectly representational of all of the churches of Jesus Christ that would come after that the best way to interpret this is referring to something specific that is going to happen for the churches in Turkey and the churches in the Roman Empire, but also as having an application for us. So here's, here's what's happening to the churches in, in the Roman Empire. The, after, after, um, after Jesus ascends into heaven, there's a time, relatively speaking, where the disciples are sort of just associated with Judaism, and they're allowed to practice their, their faith. But increasingly, soon after Jesus is, is, is resurrected, soon after Jesus ascends into heaven, persecution starts to come down upon the followers of Jesus. One of the big reasons persecution comes down on the followers of Jesus is because the followers of Jesus refuse to worship Caesar. Right? You remember that, that, that the, the, the Jewish uh, 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 people in the time of Jesus often would not even carry, uh, would not even carry the, the, the coins or the money of the empire because it had Caesar's face on it. And it wasn't the problem with the money. It was that what they wanted in the time that this is, this is written, what the emperors wanted was they wanted to be worshipped. And so they wanted all people in the Roman Empire to confess with their lips and say with their lips that Caesar was Lord. The Christians, obviously being Jesus followers, refuse to be Jesus is Lord people. They refuse to, I mean, they, they are Jesus is Lord people. They refuse to be Caesar is Lord people. And so when they're asked to, to say that Caesar is Lord, that Caesar is God, that Caesar is King, the Christians refuse to do it. Because they refuse to do that, persecution starts like, like, like crazy. The, the emperors who want to be worshipped and view themselves in the place of God, realize that these Christians, and by the way, the Christians at that time, if they simply would have said, Caesar is Lord, they could have gone on worshipping Jesus. They just would have had to say, well, Jesus is Lord too. But because the Christians said, we will not say Caesar is Lord, persecution breaks out. The persecution takes, takes several forms. And it talks about it here. In one sense, it says this, that the beast... Uh, the presence of the beast has deceived those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded and yet lived, and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who do not worship him to be put to death. Now, we know that this happened. We know that in the, in the rule of Nero, uh, the, the, uh, the first emperor, emperor post uh, essentially, the emperor closest to the time when Jesus has been resurrected, Jesus has been, been ascended. The emperor Nero, he, he implements or carries out persecutions on Christians because, one, they're an easy target. Two, they don't worship him. And so they're an easy cultural target because they look weird. When the whole culture is saying Caesar is Lord and there's a whole group of people going, no, we won't say that, they're just outside the culture. And so they have, a, they have a problem. They're viewed as weird. They're viewed as strange. They're viewed as different. They're viewed in some senses, I think, like we might view the Amish in our own culture, right? Some, you ever look at an Amish person and ask yourself, why is that person driving a horse, right? 
Like, what's that dude doing in a buggy? Like, like I get, like, like you want to be a cowboy reenactor or whatever, but this is the thing in the Amish. It's not like they're carrying six shooters or riding horse. They're just like literally have no electricity, making their own clothes, and, and, and hanging out in a buggy, and that's just sort of weird to me. And it wouldn't even be a big deal to me, but then I, I, I just think it was kind of weird. But then they like apparently have a spiritual reason for it. They're like, no, this makes us holier. And it just it baffles my mind because I think about this kind of stuff. I'm like, so like 1859 was the holiest time in history? Like 1859 Germany? Because the, the Amish speak, uh, speak, speak German. Uh, and so... As I might, and some of you are like, that is so offensive. I love the Essen House. I go down to the Shipshawana. I love those people. Shoe fly pie. They make apple pies. And you just think I'm awful, but I just think the Amish are a little weird, right? And I'm not hating. I'm just like, why? Right? Why are you doing that? Like, every day with the horses in the... Um, but I, I imagine that, generally speaking... The culture in, in, in the Roman Empire, when they're watching the Christians refuse to do the things that they did, they don't get it. And so the Christians seem odd and strange to them already. It makes Christians outside of the cultural norm. Here's the thing about those outside of the cultural norm. They're easier to pick on. And so that it was already starting to happen in, in, the, in the time and the rule of, of Nero. He needed someone to pick on. For various reasons, it was politically expedient to pick on some people. They chose the Christians. By the way, and this is just a parenthesis, that has been the way in almost all of history, right? And you need to realize that because we live in a time where, where Christians like to fancy themselves kind of the cool people in a culture. At least we're always trying to be cool people in a culture. And you watch by the things that we do. Frankly, Christians have never been the cool people in a culture. And in any culture where Christians are the cool people, we've probably lost a little bit of our Christianness. But that preview is something I'm going to say in a few minutes. So we'll leave that right, right there. But the Christians are, are, are easy to pick on. Nero needs somebody to pick on. The Christians won't worship him. So Nero starts to persecute the Christians. He's famous for his persecutions of Christians, for the things that, that they did to him. You can read about how Christians are put to death. Go to Hebrews. There's a, there's a, uh, in Hebrews chapter 12, there's what we call the, the, the hall of fame of, of Christ followers. You can read about all of these people who follow Jesus. But then at the bottom of it, there's this amazing description of the persecution that they experienced. And basically it says some of them were hacked apart, cut up, and died in horrific ways, and the world was not worthy of them. That's an accurate description of what happened to Christians in, in, in the empire, in, in the rule of, of people like Nero. Nero himself used to take Christians, and because they refused to worship him, he used to impale them on poles, dip them in oil, and light them on fire to, light up, to make light for his wild parties. Right? Because the Christians... Not only did they refuse to say Caesar is Lord, but they believed certain things. And the things which they believed taught from Scripture were confrontational or confronted the way in which Caesar wanted to live or the king wanted to live. They confronted Nero's lifestyle. And so the presence of these Christians uh, confronting his lifestyle was offensive to them. And so persecution breaks out. That happened. And so in the first century, in, in, in that's in, in, in Jerusalem... The Christians actually get, get blamed for burning uh, Jerusalem down in, in AD 70. They didn't have anything to do with it, but they're an easy scapegoat. My point being that it happens soon after the ascension of Christ. Persecution comes from the church because, frankly, we have always been the ones who are cultural outsiders. And we refuse to bow or worship the beast or the god of the day. And because we don't worship the same God that the culture does, because we're outsiders, and because when we refuse to worship the same gods they do, it, 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 it makes them feel bad about themselves, so to speak, persecution breaks out. And so in, in Turkey, in the day in which this is written, it is likely that persecution is about to come to them. And it's likely that persecution is already coming to them. And so John is writing this letter. There's a reason he writes it in the apocalyptic language, the comic book of the day. One of those reasons is that this letter is an urgent, coded letter written to a group of people who needed what it said because they had to deal with the reality that persecution was going to come upon them immediately. So the churches in Turkey, it was not figurative. It was not, um, it was not American silliness. 
right? When, 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 when they say persecution, it was like people were going to die, not I went to Walmart and they said happy holidays, right? There was real persecution problems. People were dying for what they believed. And that's what's happening in, in this church, in the churches in Turkey. And so when, when he says this, he's saying to them, essentially, the culture and the kings of the culture will try and get you to worship them. They will set themselves as a counterfeit, up as a counterfeit of God by offering you things that you think you need, by offering you things that you think you want, by offering things that you think you will enjoy. When they do that, do not give in. Do not become a slave to them, even though they're going to come for you and you may, in fact, die because of it. So here's, here then is the idea. The churches in Turkey are being warned against entering into the culture of the empire, entering into the worship of the empire, entering into the way that the empire functions, doing the things that the empire does, Saying Caesar is Lord like the empire did. Saying Nero is Lord like the empire did. And so John is warning them, hey, the time comes. There's beasts that are coming. They're going to try and get you to worship them because culture will offer you things, right? We don't often get, get culture or get the times we live in as a counterfeit for God, but it certainly is because the culture offers you things. Our culture says, do this and you'll be successful. Be successful and you'll have money. Have money and you'll be more attractive to the ladies slash men. Be more attractive to the ladies slash men. You can have this, you can have that. It offers all sorts of things, right? And what they essentially try and tell us that is if you fit in to the, into the machine that is the culture, and you do the things that the culture does, then the culture will take care of your needs. The culture will take care of your wants. You'll fit in. You'll be joyous. You'll be happy. You'll be successful. You'll be fulfilled. And all of that is meant to take your dependence upon the true God and make you place it on, on false gods. So we'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, it also, verse 18, uh, sorry, 16. Full disclosure, I've gotten, I've gotten old, and so unless I take my glasses off, I can't read little numbers, <laughs> but I don't want to put them on and off, so I should, I should print that really big or something. Just, you know, just thought we'd have a transparency moment there. It's verse 16, though. I can see it when I take my glasses off. Uh, also, it causes both free and slave to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the, na that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. In other words, uh, repeating what, what Paul said in Romans, do you not know that whatever you offer yourself to to obey, you become its slave? In other words, if you give yourself over to the culture and you do what the culture says, you become a slave to that culture. And the writer of, of Revelation, I think, is probably telling the people that your emperor wants you to worship him. But if you worship him, you become his slave. I do not think, although I really have no interest in arguing this, but I do not think that this is talking about a literal mark on the hand or on the forehead. I don't think it's talking about that. I think it's talking about if you offer yourself over to that which is, which is evil, if you offer yourself over to false gods and follow false gods, you be, will be marked as a false god. Uh, we need to, to continue because we have ground to cover. Verse 18 then says, this calls for wisdom. Let him who is understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and that number is 666. I just want to talk about this for a second. The reason I'm suggesting to you that it's, that it's probably not a literal mark is I think that probably Revelation is written slightly before AD 70. I think that Revelation is written to people before Jerusalem falls. It's written to people where persecution is going to come. It is written as a letter to tell people who are about to experience some awful things what's about to happen. And it's written in a code uh, uh, so that the people who receive it will understand it, but the people who don't understand it won't be able to use it against them. And so... Knowing all of that, the number 666, he says, calculate this number. He's probably talking about, about the way they did ancient code, the way they did ancient, ancient numbers, uh, 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 number coding. If you take that and you take 666, the number is 666, you can get two things accurately without, without trying. One, you can get the beast from that, or you can get Nero. Nero was the emperor in AD 70. Nero was the emperor when, when Jerusalem fell. Nero was the biggest problem confronting the churches in Turkey at the time, if you're talking before AD 70. All of that said, 
I'm not really that interested in arguing over that. I just think likely that when he refers to 666, he's referring to Nero, and he's telling them, watch out, Nero is going to, going to get you. Yet, that even if that's the application for them, we have to ask them, what do we do with that? What does that mean to us? I think we are in the exact same situation, only kind of worse, because they sort of got that they were in trouble. We really don't. Our culture has not been long on persecuting us. Our culture has not been long on attacking us. In fact, Christians in, in America have long been at the center of our, our, our cultural reality. You might call the word Christendom. America has largely functioned in, in terms of Christendom. Christendom is Christianity plus power. Christianity, especially before Constantine comes to power in the year uh, like AD 300, Christianity before that never operated from power. It operated from, from humility. It operated underground. It operated under persecution. But it never operated in the center of government power. And when Constantine comes along, he needs to, to unify his kingdom. And because Christianity was surging, he chooses Christianity as a way to unify his kingdom. And he makes it the state religion or the religion of, of, the, of the empire. Interesting things happen every time Christianity becomes the religion of the empire. And, and one of those is that, is that the vibrancy and the power of Christianity immediately gets weakened. So I, I shouldn't say the power of the vibrancy gets weakened. The true power in Jesus Christ gets weakened, but the political power goes higher. And so then Christianity gets mixed in with, with politics and all this other stuff. And it makes sort of a muddy, not really... Um, uh, uh, a, a muddy, not really powerful, not really life-changing version of, of, of Christianity. And so that happened with Constantine. The Christianity then after Constantine sort of falls back into, into uh, um, falls out of power uh, sometime after Constantine. And then in other places, you can look all over the world. Each time Christianity, when it's outside of the power, when it's on the edges of society, when it's on, when it's on the margins, when it's on the run, so to speak, when it is not worshiping the culture, when that, that stuff happens, Christianity starts to grow again, grows, 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 grows. And in those places, Christianity then becomes popular. There's enough people. They start to vote themselves into office. They start to think that they have political power. And then Christianity gets messed up again. And that's not just a statement on America, although that's true of America. That's not a statement on America. That's happened from Constantine. It happened in... Um, in Britain, after the time of Patrick, it's happened all over where Christianity gets mixed with power. Christendom happens. Christendom usually kills Christianity. Christendom it is not a word that just means where Christians are. Christendom means Christianity plus political power, right? So all of that to say this is that in our country, we are used to Christendom. We have words like the religious right. Most of you are too young, but the religious right was founded when I was a small child, and it had great political power. Things like the movie, movie ratings uh, thing had large to do with cr Christian political power. And you can look, look all over where Christians have wielded political power, and things have happened. What you have to ask yourself, though, is did Christianity itself, as, as evidenced by a humble powerful affection for the person of Jesus Christ and following him no matter what the culture said. Did that grow alongside the political power or did the political power muddy the waters of what Christianity was? And so I think though we are right now in the throes of what he is writing to the churches in Turkey about. We are very, very much in a place where for the first time we are experiencing the crumbling of Christendom. Christendom has, has, been, uh, has been broken if you're a Christian and your dream was to politically legislate Christianity through our government, I am sorry to tell you that that ship has sailed. The Christian right, which probably never should have been a thing, has murdered itself this election season. It was suicide, but time of death is now, and I'm not really that sad to see it go. The reality is, is that we craved and wanted power. We thought we were in the center of our culture. You will hear us use terms like, this culture was founded on Jesus. This culture, this is a Judeo-Christian, and there is a sense in which that is true. 
But that sense is not the sense in which it means that we truly were a nation of humble, deep followers of the person of Jesus Christ. It means that we had a religious affection for certain principles of Christianity. Most of our founders deists. Most of them don't believe in the Trinity. Most of them don't believe that Jesus was God. Most of them don't believe that Jesus was resurrected. Just, just historically speaking. But yes, Christianity grows in this nation. We get the political power. And it is tempting to think that what we really need back. As we stand at this juncture in our American history. To go, it is scary what is going on out there. You have one candidate who does not like religious freedom, and you have another candidate who doesn't seem to like anybody. What are you going to do with this? And it is tempting to think if we could just elect the right person, if you just voted for the right person, if you just put the right person in the office, then everything would be okay and everything would be fine. That is a lie directly from our friend the beast who is allowed to speak. That is the beast speaking telling you everything will be okay if you can just get the political power. The political power has never, ever, ever helped Christianity. You know why? Because Jesus is king and he's not all that impressed with our presidents, right? Jesus is ruler and he never got the impression that he wasn't in control. And so this weak idea that the beast says you need to vote for this person or that person or do this or do that so that you can put that person back in office, that's, that's just a lie from the beast that's never been that impressive to Jesus who is near the throne from which all of human history emanates. He just has never felt himself not in power. So I, I say all of that to say that we stand then at the precipice of a time and a place where you are going to be asked to decide who do you worship? What do you worship? And it is a two-way street, by the way. There are, there's two different things going on. One is that the culture will tell you that you must worship at, at, at the throne of their political power. You must do this. You must do that. Our own Christian culture, our Christendom, will tell you you must vote. And if we just voted the right people in office, everything would work out. And they've said that every election, and it's never worked out. Right? But they've said that at every election. If just this, just this, the Christian culture will, will tell you that. The, the, that is a lie straight from the beast. The beast wants you to say that Caesar is Lord. And the more you invest yourself in the belief that voting for the right political candidate is going to fix what's wrong with this nation, the more you are investing yourself in worship of the beast. That is simply beast worship. You're worshiping the image that the beast has made. At the same time, there's other attacks, and they were going on uh, at the same time. In, in this Daniel, in Daniel chapter 11, 30 through 39, he warns us of, of this. And I'm going to just read this to you because Revelation largely connected to, to Daniel. Uh, Daniel warns that a latter-day deceiver will infiltrate the church and turn people away from God. When purported Christian teachers take their primary cues from the surrounding culture instead of from God's word, they corrupt the covenant community spirituality by encouraging it to live by the norms in a faith that ultimately opposed the reign of God and Christ. That is true whether you are being told to be on the religious right or whether you are told to be on the, to be on the religious left. There is one group would say you will save yourself by voting for this person. And another group within the church would say the church needs to change to save itself. So the, there's a whole group of people who would suggest to you from within the church that we need to be cooler in culture. We need to fit in in culture. We need to be less offensive to culture. Therefore, we need to acquiesce to the teaching of culture on human sexuality. We need to agree with what the culture says. And so the people go, well, why did that? Uh, this week, InterVarsity demanded that people who work for InterVarsity hold to historic Christian teachings that have been taught for 2,000 years and other Christian people threw a fit. I can't believe they do that. Why'd they make them do that? This is just really, out, and they, they threw a fit. The reality is all they did was stated something that the Church of Jesus Christ has believed for 2,000 years. Guys, if you think that we are going to be cool, you are greatly mistaken. I will take being loving over being cool. Here's, here's the thing, and I know this always, people get nervous when we talk about, about sexuality because they, they hear that wrong. Let me just be perfectly honest, and here's one of the problems. As Christians, we're not truthful enough about how weird we are in the first place. So let's just be truthful about Christians. We believe, number one, that it's a sin to get drunk, right? That's a biblical teaching. We believe that, right? Does culture believe that, generally speaking? Nope. Does it make us weird in culture? Yep. Have we been out there talking about that? Nope. Um, we believe that it's a sin 
to look at pictures of, of naked women who are, you are not married to. That's called pornography. We believe that's a sin. We believe that, right? That's a teaching. The word fornication literally is pornea. It's the same word as pornography. We believe that, right? The Bible says you shouldn't fornicate. We, we believe that. Does that make us a little different than most of society? Now, some of society's coming back because of the infiltration of computers is saying, yes, pornography is bad. But most of the culture doesn't agree with that. Let's take it a step further. Not only do we believe that, that pornography is bad, this is how weird we are. We believe that the Sports Illustrated swimsuit uh, issue is sinful. We believe that Christian men who love their wives and young men who are going to one day love their wives should not look at that. We need to be honest about that because they need to understand we're weird. Right? Not only do we believe that, that we should not be looking at pictures uh, of, of people or lusting after people that we're not married to, we believe that a Christian should not go around getting too physical. And now we always try and define this, and we never know where to define it, right? But some Christians believe that you should never kiss anybody that you're not married to, right? Some Christians believe that. And other Christians have historically believed, well, maybe you can kiss, but you can't go much further. But we all agree, based upon Scripture, and have always agreed for years and years and years and years, that your hands, if you are not married to that person, belong to yourself, to use a kindergarten reference, right? Keep your hands to yourself. We believe that, don't we? Does culture believe that? I don't think so, right? Um, we believe that a person should not... And this one used to be shocking, but it's not anymore. We believe that a Christian should not have sex with anyone that they're not married to, right? We believe that. So in other words, I believe that a dude who is not married to, to a girl should not live with that girl and have sex with that girl until he is committed to and married that girl. Now, our culture says, well, how are you going to know how it works? How are you going to know if you connect? If you've never been with them before you get married, how are you going to know whether that works? Leaving aside the fact that 75% of cohabitations end in divorce, which is greater than the general population by 25%, leaving aside that all kinds of people for generations, right, all kinds of Christian people for generations and other people did not have sex with anyone until they married that person and were married for years and years and years and years and had a much lower divorce rate. But leaving aside all of that, that is sort of a weird belief in our time, right? Let me ask you this. Do you think I have friends who live with their, with their girlfriend? Yep. Do I have friends who, who, have, who have sex with people they're not married to? Yep. Do I have friends who, who get drunk? Coached football for 20 years. I know some drunks, Okay. Do I love those people? Absolutely. Are they my friends? Yes. Do I do those things? I do not. Do I hate those people? Absolutely not. And the problem here is this, is that we have refused to be honest about how weird we are, right? Because the calling of Scripture, the calling of Scripture calls Christians to behave in line with the way that Jesus calls us to, to behave. And what the problem with the Christian right in Christian political power is we took a book that told us how to behave, didn't behave like most of it, weren't honest about how most of our behavior, and then tried to apply how we're supposed to behave to the political process to tell other people, you've got to behave like a Christian. At the same time, our house was dirty as could be, and we were telling other people to clean up their front porch. It was junk. And the problem is we just need to be straight up honest that we're a little weird. And we don't hate you because you're not like us. We're not angry at you're not like us. We just follow Jesus, and Jesus tells us to behave like this. So that I have friends who are drunks. I have friends who do all kinds of things that I would not do and would not, uh, would not dream of doing. I love all of them. I do believe that it is, it is wrong for a man to have sex with a woman he is not married to. I believe that it is wrong for a man to have sex with a man. I believe it is wrong for a woman to have sex with another woman. I believe that, that the concept of gay marriage, the problem is not political, it's just philosophical. Marriage is something given by God. It's not so much that the government approved it, it's that it can't exist, right? It's God ordained that a man would marry one. I believe that. Do I hate people who do not believe that? I do not. The calling of a Jesus follower is love people, period. Do I demand people behave like I behave before they know the Jesus that I do? I don't. Why? They can't. It's silly. And the reality is I need to spend much more time making sure I behave like the Jesus I follow than trying to make sure other people do. And I think the big problem is we have not been honest about the reality that we are largely a group of weirdos based upon the things that we believe. We believe all kinds of things different than the culture. This... This passage applies to us because we are tempted to listen to the culture. We're tempted to allow the culture to set the, to set the, to set the bar. 
We're tempted to let the culture tell us what to do. We're tempted to let the culture tell us what to believe. That's, that's not right. This applies to us. Sometimes I pick passages. And I think that the first part's going to go really quick. So I have these really long passages. And then it doesn't go really quick. And now I find myself at this place where we need to, we need to talk about what chapter 14 says just real quick. Okay? Here's the thing. If you're going to follow Jesus into the next decades, you're not going to be the cool kid anymore, guys. You're not going to get away with that. And if you want to be the cool kid, uh, like that's just not Christianity. And um, it's, it's all right, but it's not, it's not what it means to be a Jesus follower. Right? So the reality is, though, is that our culture is likely, it is likely, because we've done a really poor job of displaying the love of Jesus, by the way, to our culture, and we've only discovered that might makes right, all this political stuff, our culture is likely to continue to turn against us, and our culture is likely to say, if you don't worship the things we worship, you're outsiders. If you don't do it, you're hateful. If you don't worship, they're likely to get angry with us, and persecution is likely to start to come to us. Um, I don't think we're going to be anywhere near at Turkey anytime soon, but within your lifetime, who knows what happens. I always remind people when they lecture me about who I shouldn't vote for or how I need to vote. I'm like, listen, the Roman Empire was alone much longer than America. It was much more powerful, and it's not there anymore. I just don't see any promises that nations are eternal. I follow Jesus, and he is, though, right? So in the face of this demand that you give into the culture, that you become enslaved to the culture, in the face of the demand that you, you, get, you get 666 stamped on your head or your hand, we read this, then I looked... Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him the 144,000 who had his name. Uh, 666, one of the reasons those numbers are used, I should have mentioned this, is that the number 7 or multiples of 7 and 12 are viewed as complete or good numbers throughout Revelation. They use numbers like that. The number 6 is viewed as incomplete, so it's, a, it's used to designate evil. When you encounter 144,000 multiple of 12, what you are encountering is naturally a number that doesn't literally mean 144,000. It means the complete number, the full number, the good number. So, then I looked again, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Why didn't they ever tell us when we were little, scaring us about that 666 on our forehead? They never told us that the father was marking his too. They never told us. Why didn't they tell us that God marks his own, that God protects his own? They told us, be afraid of the devil. What a terrible way to go. I don't want to spend my time being afraid of the devil. I want to spend my time being in love with the Savior. Why didn't they tell us? Then looked again, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on his foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like a roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn the song except for the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who had not defiled themselves. It is these who follow the, the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found. They are blameless. Here's the idea. It is true that persecution is likely to come. If you're a Christian, you're a weirdo. Stop trying to not be a weirdo. It makes you come off as a jerk uh, regularly. It makes you come off as all kinds of things. You are a weirdo. Just be like, yeah, dude, I love you. I'm just weird. This is what Jesus tells me what to do. That's a better place to start because then we can start from love. But our culture is not going to appreciate our, our weirdness. And like I told you at the beginning, if there's a weirdo in a society and persecution has to come and things are breaking down, they pick on the weirdos and the outsiders first. You need to understand that you're a weirdo and an outsider. You need to understand the power of the church and being a weirdo and an outsider, right? Christianity has exploded and blown up in nations all across history and all across time. Every time the church did it as an outsider. Here's an interesting thing. You know who really wants, wants Jesus? The people who are outside of everything else. And when the church gets pushed to the edge, you discover there's all kinds of hurting people out there. And you discover that what Jesus called us to do was to love hurting people. And we get forced out to where we have to do our job where we have to do what we're supposed to, and it's okay. Like, it's okay to be outside. There's all kinds of outsiders out there, all kinds of broken people out there, all kinds of hurting people out there, and they desperately need Jesus. The question is, are we going to be the weirdos to go tell them? It's okay. But here's, here's what I like. Here's what this passage says. I want to remind you, yeah, maybe persecution is coming. 
Maybe brokenness is coming. Maybe all of that is coming. They're going to view us as weird. They're going to try and make us outsiders. They're going to do this. They're going to do all of that. But I want you to remember this. The Father marks his own, and this is a promise that he will protect them. See, Romans says, says this. It says, this momentary, this momentary suffering is nothing compared to the all-surpassing glory that will one day be ours. That's a paraphrase, but it essentially says this. This is a time, and this is a place. I can't make promises. The Roman Empire is not there anymore. Like, we could elect one of these people, and like four years from now, we could all be speaking Russian. I don't know. I do know this, that no matter who claims to be in charge of this nation, the one who has marked me as his own will always be my king. And that there is protection for us. That he will not allow us to be, to be destroyed. Yeah, they might rock our bodies. They might kill us. But we will not be destroyed. We will not be wiped out. We will not be overcome. The Father marks his own. And what I hope for all of us is that we would take that mark seriously. And we would stand on the edges of a broken culture welcoming all the other people that a culture... Listen, somebody always comes to power in a culture and whoever's in charge, when they get there, they always force out other people. That's what happens. Sadly, the church was at the center of the culture for too long and it was us, which is the opposite of our mission. So thank you, Jesus, for sending this and forcing us out of the center back to the edge where the people who need him so desperately are so that we can fulfill what we were called to do, so we can be who we were called to be, so that we marked with the mark of the Father and the Son on our foreheads might live out our calling to follow Jesus. It's true. We're outsiders in this culture. That's a better place to be. It's a better place to be. And so my prayer is that you will... You will fight hard against this call to be, to be an insider. You will fight hard against the cultures telling you and, and other people in, in other places in the church telling you, you've got to give up 2,000 years of historic. We're, we're based upon the historic reality of a risen Savior. When they find the bones, when they find the body, when they prove that he's not risen, I'll stop believing. But they can't find him because he's not there, because he's not dead, because he's alive. And because he's alive and because he's in me, I follow Jesus. And he sets the rules for me. And he marks me. And frankly, if I have to be a weirdo to this culture, I will be a weirdo to the day I die. And if they kill me, so be it. But I will stand on the edges of society proclaiming the goodness of Jesus. Like a good little weirdo. I'm all right with it.